Well, welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast here for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. I'm James Creppy, and he is Aaron Fentress, and we'll get into Oregon's win at UCLA, a 34-31 win where the Ducks now improve to 6-1 and on the season, 3-1 and in Pac-12 play, move up in the polls thanks to a couple of losses elsewhere, uh, which is kind of a by-default situation. Teams had to lose along the way, and they will continue to have to lose along the way as Michigan and Michigan State play this week. Some other Big Ten East games that'll come up where the team's going to have to cannibalize a little bit. So the Ducks will benefit in the big picture from things like that. But in the near term, they still have to take care of business. And it started with this past weekend against UCLA, which was, as we discussed, it was going to be one of their bigger tests, if not their biggest remaining test uh, at this point in the season. So big picture, Aaron, what were some of your big takeaways overarchingly uh, from yet another win for the Ducks? Hey, the Ducks are 2-0, and and I picked them to lose. There might be something to that. <laughs> um, I figured it would be a close game. And I come down to the wire, it did. I think you had you had a pretty close score as well, right? But you had Oregon winning, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I-, I was just impressed with their resiliency coming back from 14-0. They had other adversities as well. And, you know, on one hand, it's like, yes, big test. They passed it on the road against a, a good not great, but good UCLA team. But again, it was a close win, and they keep having these close games. And if you keep playing close games, eventually you're going to lose. You already lost one. So I still feel like there's some danger zones coming up along the way. But cave on back for a full game like that, the, the way he just dominated, that was like a Lawrence Taylor-type performance where there's nothing you could really do to him. He was going to impact the game. That sort of changes sort of the, the view of this team when he's out there full-time like that. So maybe they are capable of running the table. But I thought overall, great win. Uh, definitely some positive signs also with Brown as well. But I still feel like there's like some some potential landmines ahead for them, the way they keep winning these close games. Yeah, I mean, I, I discussed this a little bit with uh, uh, somebody yesterday about, and I think we're probably going to examine this more in the weeks ahead because we are only seven games into the season. So it's one of those, like, is the trend going to continue with it? But I think there's an element to this team that it kind of feels like and compares to uh, a couple of teams from years past, not necessarily Oregon teams from years past, but uh, the comparison we were making uh, in the discussion yesterday was Florida State 2014, where you heard at, the, at that time, it was the first time that many people heard about the metric game control. And that was such a lightning rod topic and uh at the time like nobody really ever heard of the thing uh it was a new metric and the counter argument at the time was like but they won but they won but they won like but they kept winning so what are you talking about this game control thing but it became the topic because that was the first year of the playoff and where do you rank this team and they're undefeated but they're not dominating and yeah they're coming off a national championship but they're not dominating and everybody was trying to figure out basically anyone not in Tallahassee was was saying yeah but they're not they're not dominating and everyone down there was like yeah but we're winning so i think that this you know, again depending on how the rest of the season goes and how the weeks go on here and you can't just say oh well they play colorado so that should be easier and we'll get into this week's game of colorado for sure but kind of like the arizona game quite honestly yeah uh, we're probably not going to spend that much time in colorado <laughs> um but but point is is they have played down to or up to 
their competition on a week-to-week basis. And when you do that, as we've discussed before and as Aaron just brought up again, you're not going to give yourself very many easy Saturdays. They haven't. They haven't so far. They haven't had an easy Saturday. They haven't had an easy game. Um, Now, having said that, I think that, and I'm not just looking through uh, uh, rose-colored glasses and, and silver linings here, there are are two aspects of that that I view in a, a somewhat positive light, though. One, and I say somewhat, because, of course, if you're a fan, you go like, oh, you want your team to win by 50 every week. Um, and, and, <laughs> but if you're us, though, you like these types of games better, though, right? <laughs> as long as, I'm, well, yeah, as long, well, deadline is more interesting to cover. In the same way. Yes, they're, they're more far more interesting. interesting. Um, yeah. But it certainly makes, a, yeah, from a writing standpoint, <laughs> they're more interesting to cover, but at the same time, you can have everything you're working on uh, become a select all delete uh, very quickly um, <laughs> in games like this. But um, no, in, in, in two aspects with close games, um, select all it's, delete. that's good. There's, there's a, there's two elements. One we've talked about before and mentioned before, but it bears repeating because I think this, especially for this fan base who has some of whom have a very, uh, uh, warped uh view of history <laughs> um and yesteryear who believe that they should only win by 50 and that is all, all that used to happen before um one that doesn't happen yeah. two that the composition of this roster is still overwhelmingly true freshman second year freshman second uh well really third-year sophomores. Yes, the occasional fourth-year sophomore in there because of the, the redshirt sophomores and those things. And it is not a team that is loaded up with juniors and seniors. Their roster, this if this roster was composed the way UCLA's roster was composed, then you would be saying, hey, where, where, where's the results? What's going on? If you had a two-deep as loaded with seniors as UCLA's was, which is why this year for UCLA was a win now year. Not just because, oh, it's Chip Kelly's fourth year. No, it's he's got a senior quarterback who's been around for four years. He's got a two deep. But hey, at the beginning for him, again, remember, for all you Chip disciples who wish that he would come back and only remember the glorious you know moments. The first couple of years when he was sticking up the joint in Westwood, it was, hey, what I inherit and... Everybody around here is in diapers. You know, we're in our first years. You know, we're still just learning to tie our shoes. Well, now this was win now because, hey, it's four years. Hey, there's no excuses. Hey, everybody's a senior. Now, again, look, you can still end up having a solid season. No question about it. But the expectation for them this year was they had to win now. And if Oregon's roster were composed the way that UCLA's roster was, then you would say not just where's the wins, where the dominant wins because this is an, an inexperienced team. Well, Oregon is an inexperienced team, relatively speaking. And even again, for the players who were around last year, I, I I don't make much of last year for damn near anybody in the Pac-12 about the only Oregon player you can make a, a case that really had a significant uh, season last season on the younger side was Noah Sewell. And even he is still talking about half a season, but be that as it may. That's one aspect where I say the closer games, you you bear that in mind as a contextual point. The other being, 
I think, and the you know, it's it's coach speak, but you hear about like learning how to win or learning how not to lose or those sorts of things. And easier, to, you know, better to take it when when you're on the winning side and all those sorts of things. Every team deals with this every Saturday in that aspect. But when you have a lot of younger players who haven't been tested in those moments, going through it a few times, and yes, being on the positive side along the way, uh, right. but going through it a few times. There's only one way to learn that. You can't simulate that in practice. You can't just say, "Up, oh, all right, down three, two minutes on the clock. What are we doing?" <laughs> well, there's not fifty thousand people at practice. There's not the opposition who is going to throw you a curveball at practice. There's not, you know, not everything goes not according to plan in practice. Um, so those sorts of elements that come along the way naturally in the course of the game, I think those things are. I say either contextual point with this roster composition and those things in relative youth combined with that youth gaining some of these really useful experiences. Those are positive things in terms of when you start looking ahead to the rest of the season where, all right, because by the end of the season, you say, I don't care if we're even talking about true freshmen. Nobody's a freshman anymore or nobody's a sophomore anymore. Nobody's. Yeah, they are. At that point, there is no such thing. You are getting older. Well, you've got a couple of games here coming up where – on paper, and frankly, in this week against Colorado, in reality, Oregon is the vastly more talented, the vastly better coached team, and has an opportunity to start to play some more complete games. Now, Washington's still a rivalry. Washington State still has some talent, though Oregon's at home. And obviously, Washington State just had to assemble an offensive coaching staff on the fly. Last week, it'll be a couple. Of we- it'll be a couple of weeks out by the time they play them. But point is, is Still, yes, there yeah. there are issues. Yeah, there are issues ahead for some of their opponents, uh, and then we will get into obviously taking a look down the road for Utah and Oregon State in particular. But point is, is it's another win, and I've I've said before. I think we're going to keep saying here. Style points is not style points are already bought and acquired, and that was taken care of in Columbus. If we want to get it, you know, th- this team has a chance for everything it's looking for in terms of the big picture for Pac-12 and for potentially the playoff. But style points is not at issue here. It's not. It's not. That's done already. And I think you heard a little bit of that even during the telecast on Saturday, quite frankly, for fans who weren't at the Rose Bowl. You watch it from home. Because nationally speaking, you had seven and a half million people plus watch the game against Ohio State. And then other than a little bit of that Friday night game against Cal, a little bit, because we're still practical after dark kind of late late night thing. This was the next opportunity. Uh, yeah, I guess the Stanford game to a point, because that, that was that was in a better time slot. But for those who caught that, it was like, oh, look, it was crazy. It was overtime. It was calls. It was penalties. It was all these things here was the next big opportunity for a larger audience to watch Oregon outside of the West coast, outside of Oregon nationally, the perception of the team is a very different spot than where it is locally. So I do so think you, that there when, are things when you, that when you yeah. say, when you say it doesn't matter in what context is it, does it not matter? Cause there's different, there's different ways that if they just keep winning, if they just keep, if they just keep winning, I'm I, I'm not look. There are obviously mathematically speaking, Wake Forest is still undefeated. Um, the whoever wins Michigan, Michigan State is still undefeated. So theoretically, there are undefeated teams who are ahead of them who control their own fate more than Oregon does. But but 
if you operate from the presumption that Ohio State's going to end up beating whoever wins between Michigan and Michigan State, uh, if not both of them, that Oklahoma is going to trip up because they darn near did against Kansas, if we want to get into game control, that Cincinnati may trip up, or even if they go undefeated, that what does it necessarily matter because they're out of the group of five and they may not make it anyway. I'm just taking the you know, 30,000 foot. I happen to think that if Cincinnati goes undefeated the season that they are going to get through, but be that as it may, that there's going to be an opening in the top four and therefore that they'll get into the playoff if as so long as they just keep winning their games. If they win out. Now, again, mathematically speaking, there's still not a mortal lock for that because there's an ACC undefeated team. There's a, multiple Big Ten undefeated teams. Uh, there's, again, Cincinnati and Oklahoma and obviously Georgia. And then you run into the real hypothetical of, well, what if Alabama actually wins out and beats Georgia and you got two one-loss SEC teams? Uh, hard to believe that either of them would be left out of a four-team playoff. So that's way down the road. But when I say style points don't necessarily matter, it's because, because the Pac-12 is what it is, in general, and especially this season, where my goodness, on a week-to-week basis, when you look at the matchups, and and if you were a TV executive, like which game would you actually want to show on your network? Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, um, what what would winning by thirty really change in the in the narr- in the grand scheme of things? One, two, the selection committee flat out says they don't incentivize running up the score. They just don't. It really does come down to a little bit of yeah, winning. Of course, being they're not, they're not you know uh, fools. Yeah, if you if there was just a juggernaut out there bowling over teams all the time, well, yeah. But ultimately, if they win and they end up at twelve and one entering Selection Sunday, that's it. Twelve and one is either good enough to be ahead of and in the playoff because. That's just the way it goes, and there's not four undefeated teams in front of them, or it's not, and there's four undefeated teams in front of them. That's all there is. There's not going to be an argument about, oh, style points for Oregon versus whoever if there's all these one-loss teams. There's not? Because if there's all these one... If there's all these one-loss teams and there's only like one undefeated like Georgia or two undefeated, Georgia and Cincinnati, and there's two spots open and Oregon sitting there at 12-1, and one, they're in. They're in. Who's get, who? So, multiple so one-loss teams are getting ahead of them earlier, at that point. Earlier this year, I, okay, so my stance has always been if you go 12-1 and one in the Pac-12, you're going to get in. But earlier this year, I thought you were saying you, you didn't agree that that was a given, but now it sounds like you do. In the big picture, you can't guarantee that. Even right now, you can't. I just said I laid out a scenario. So, right. So I, that, first, I acknowledge that there are multiple that you can't say it's a lock right now because there is still. Again, I do. I think Wake Forest is going to lose. Yes, I think Wake Forest is going to lose at some point. Do I think that Ohio State is probably going to win the Big Ten East and beat Michigan and Michigan State and whoever survives the Michigan Michigan State game this weekend? Yes, but it's not done yet. So that's why. So you can't say, oh, well, it's just a given that the twelve and one Pac twelve team is going to get there. No, you can't. You, you can't say that. You can't say that, especially where Oregon picked up a win at Ohio State. There was years where, go back a couple of years, the 19 season, for example, where like Utah, there was the whole argument of when they were six going into the Pac-12 title game and had they won, what would have happened? And all. Well, their non-conference schedule wasn't good. So you can't just say in general and broad scope, 
oh, like a one-loss Pac-12 team is obviously going to get in. No, there are certain circumstances you can present where either there's a whole bunch of undefeated teams or the non-conference strength of schedule is not very good or the conference strength of schedule in the case of this year is really bad. So, yes, there are circumstances you can come up with where it would be very, very difficult for even a one-loss Pac-12 team to get through. I'm saying that in the scenario whereby there's only one or two undefeated teams in the four-team field, and the debate is over multiple one-loss teams, even including Oregon and Ohio State, which actually helps Oregon in a big way in that case. Oregon's in. Okay. There's not even a remote argument. Because then you would be talking about a one-loss Oklahoma who has been even less, certainly less impressive than Oregon to this point, doesn't have a quality win to its credit at all. They're they, a, a loss for them might drop them like to the bottom of the top ten. Quite frankly, right now, there are people who don't think anything of Oklahoma yet. Yet, Wake Forest, nobody believes in right now at the moment. And again, if we're talking about multiple one loss, who else is in the conversation with them other than Ohio State at this point? At this point, and if Georgia's undefeated, then Bam has got two losses. So who is in that in that scenario? Who are some of the other? one loss teams who you need to have two of them in this scenario jump Oregon to get ahead of them in that scenario. Now, when you start getting into, well, there's three undefeated teams and there's only one spot available. Well, then we're going to get into the a million different things. That's for six weeks from now conversation. My only thing is that, I mean, a lot of football remains to be played. So, you know, who knows how everything's yeah. going to shake out. And like I said, I think 12 and one pack 12, you're probably going to get in, but I just I have a feeling that if it comes down to picking between teams, and I'm not going to say I've looked at the schedule of every team, but if you're winning a bunch of close games in a weak ass conference and you lost to Stanford, which might be a 500 team, and you, you continue to do that, if they go they they go play Washington and it's you know 29 27, they beat Washington State maybe by 10 at home, then they struggle with Utah, struggle with Oregon State, that could come back to bite them because the conference is hideous as opposed to 2014 when the ducks were boat racing teams and the conference finished the year i think with five or six ranked teams so there was a strength of schedule and you were blowing people out 12 and 1 got you in even though you lost arizona but arizona finished 10th so that's the only thing where i just wonder and then the other the other reason why the style points matter at this point not in terms of making the playoffs but in terms of can they close this out <laughs> because if you keep playing games like this it's just just like with the Stanford game eventually something bad's going to happen and you're going to lose the game in the fourth quarter and they have yeah. two, they have oh, three right now I'm not arguing so, the uh, contrary No I know you're not I know you're not I'm just saying why really? I I feel a little different so there are three games right now I mean Colorado they should that shouldn't be an issue like I don't even want to talk about that game if, they, if that game's even close then there's a whole that's almost like an Arizona situation, which I think they've improved from Arizona. Washington State with all the, the dysfunction there, I would hope that's not a game. But Washington just being up in Washington and just that rivalry, who knows what Washington would bring to the table. I think Oregon wins that game. Not handily, but I think they win it convincingly. But who knows? But Utah, Oregon State are kind of scary. But I'm just, so I'm just saying that for me, that's the only thing. But at the end of the day, like you said, winning is all that matters. And winning is all that should matter. Like even with that Florida State team back, back in 2014 – People kept saying, oh, they're not that good. They're not that good. I'm like, they're winning and they're the defending national champions. And I think they won 24 in a row before Oregon thumped them. But the Oregon game showed that, yeah, you know what? 
maybe they weren't all that good. They were just skimping by these other teams. And then they played a real team and got smoked. (laughs) So those are the only things that make me a little leery. But overall, I agree with your point that winning is all that matters. If they continue to win, they'll probably get in. Yeah, and I would actually argue, lastly on this, before we get more into the specifics of the game, but I realize that this is so much of the conversation nationally and, yes, even among fans on the on the week-to-week, so, you know, why not just acknowledge it out the gate? Um, you could actually make an argument that if Oregon were just blasting everybody in the Pac-12, and I mean by four scores plus blasting, mm-hmm. I don't mean win by 17 blasting, that if they were doing that on a week-to-week basis, that would further the argument that the Pac-12 sucks. Especially when the records are what they are this year. So you're saying the, you, the close games create because the illusion that the Pac-12 then, isn't that Because bad. here's the thing. Here's, because I'm not laughing you at you. I'm of, just laughing at the idea. No, that's the point. No, because here's the thing. Because, again, it's the West Coast. It's, it's the Pac-12. Because because right. Clemson doesn't get nitpicked enough hadn't been nitpicked enough about the weakness of the ACC now now people realize it now you know that they happen to win a couple of national titles so they were immune from that kind of criticism but now people realize it now when Clemson has a down year everybody's going like how in the world could you have a down year against this this is a mess (laughs) right right but when they were doing it or going back to that 14 Florida State team, for example, and yes, that was at a time where the ACC had a little bit more relative strength uh, at the top. Yeah. But there it was, for the last basically eight years or so in the ACC, you had conversations about, all right, there's one or two really good teams, one or two really good teams, and if there's a dominant team in there, well then, hey, they're really dominant. They're that great. And yes, Clemson was a national champion multiple times, so it helped. And then they would play really good teams, and they'd be good. But if Oregon were just blasting everybody in the Pac-12, which is not a good league, which has some very bad teams, and has records that are downright miserable outside of Oregon and Oregon State right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think the perception would be like, well, yeah, there's this team out there that's winning, but... Uh, and... <laughs> Nationally speaking, that's you to be hearing like, oh, well, they're winning, but someone has to. So, you know, I don't know what it really matters. Again, this is just this is now just about winning the games. Dominance or style points. They're not going to gain the the national perception or even the perception of the playoff committee is not going to change all that much if they start winning by 17 every week. But let me ask you this, though. If they're going, if they're the selection committee sits down, they're looking at the one loss teams. Are they going to pick Oregon over Ohio State because Oregon beat Ohio State? Or are people going to say, look at the scores. Ohio State was thumping people. Does Ohio State have a better overall resume because playing a better conference, blowing out other teams versus Oregon? You start looking at those scores going, eh, I don't know. The the million-dollar question that we'll, we'll certainly revisit. I'm not, we're, we're, I'm not even going to have the first installment of that this week. And that's one that, like, I think – when we get closer to that, when it gets later to November, let's put it this way. When we get into conference championship week, how about that? When we get through the actual, the, re, the the true regular season, we get the conference title week. If that is still on the table, if Ohio State is taking care of business and they are entering the Big Ten title game and they're a one-loss team and Oregon's taking care of business and at that point even beating Oregon State, 
and they're entering the Pac-12 title game as one loss team. I have a feeling that uh, our friends at Cleveland.com and us will be doing a very large scale one of these <laughs> um, to have exactly that discussion and debate because, yes, because that's why you have in, right now the conversation about the polls and why in the polls is Ohio State ahead of Oregon when they won, not just they won heads Because head to head doesn't it. matter in the polls. Very, it matters well, little. To some people. Little. To, some, to some people. I mean, to some you, people. you've ranked, you've voted before. Are you voting now? Uh, I have actually never voted in the AP poll for football, which is oh, okay. actually kind of hard to believe, to be totally honest. Yeah, with it is. <laughs> but but um, yeah, but I, I do vote in men's basketball. I think I'm going to be voting in women's basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, uh, but no, I have not voted. So in, you, uh, you know from basketball too. Then it's very difficult to factor head to head in when you're voting. Well, there's more games in and well, well, there's you, more. Well, yeah, yeah, but you're voting in circles: team A, B, team B, 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 C, C, B, A, or I like this team better than this team, but I like that team better than that team, but that team beat this team. But how do I like, it's just when people look at a poll and go, how does this happen head to head? They don't under, they've never voted before. I challenge people to just vote every week and then like, look at your previous poll, look at the results, then try to rank it again. And you'll hit a roadblock where you're like, well, just because this team beat that team doesn't mean I'm automatically put them ahead of them. And what do you do if we have one team 15 and one team eight, but 15 beat eight are you going to move 15 to seven or are you going to move eight down to 16 even if you think the guy you had the team you had at eight is better than all the teams in between like it just becomes a quagmire but one more point and then we can move on if you want it could be a situation where you have ohio state and oregon one loss in the mix and they're both in anyway so the head-to-head doesn't matter right but if the right. head-to-head ma- but if they but if it comes down to which one which team's going to get in i can see the selection committee going well we just think Ohio State's better, regardless of what happened in September. And look at their scores, 54 7, 52 13, 66 17, 59 7, 41 20. And a lot of those you rattle off. Here's the one thing. Who have they played so far? Right. They're not good teams. But then you look at Oregon playing bad teams. They Fourth quarter, it's in Dallas, Arizona. They lose this game. The Stanford. point is, is Oregon's, they, Oregon's so, better teams that are left. That are they're left one they just played, and they'll have Utah and Oregon State at the end. And yes, Ohio State has Penn State, and Ohio State has Michigan and Michigan State coming up. Yeah, that's way better. But the teams, I I don't disagree. Oh, okay. But point is, is the teams who they've played to date have been bad teams, just like Oregon has played bad teams. Right, but the so far, so far, yes, yes, so far, Ohio State has absolutely beaten the tar out of a lot of the bad opponents who they have played. Right. Yes. But the season's not over yet. True. They're no, about to play some of their better opponents that they could either lose or well. play close games. And Oregon's going to play some weaker opponents and then some better opponents where right. they have a chance to potentially flip the script and get better. Of course. Now, but the again, scenario, that's but why. But the there scenario are games was to one be loss. Played. But the scenario we were talking about was one yeah. loss. If, one loss, if these two yeah. teams are at one loss, Ohio State's resume looks a thousand times better in terms of quality of teams played and the scores. Whereas Oregon's so looks far. weak. So far. Other than, I said yes. if okay, if we if they both are twelve and one, that means Ohio mm-hmm. State beat Penn State, beat Michigan, mm-hmm. beat Ohio Michigan State, and then won their conference title game. There's nothing Oregon can do to match that resume. So at the end of the season, Ohio State's resume will look way better than Oregon's, other than the fact that Oregon beat Ohio State in September and the argument can be made that even though Oregon won in September, that Ohio State's the better team and therefore more deserving because they have the better overall resume than Oregon. That's all I'm saying. That's why I think yeah. it could matter in the end. 
yes. But when you get down to that level of argument, of a, you're talking about a scenario of it's in or out. They're in the four, right. five, six discussion and the way the playoff rankings work for, for fans who haven't followed all the intricacy of it. They, they rank in clusters. They first pocket them in clusters of six, then they whittle it down to three. So in this scenario we're laying out, Oregon and Ohio State would be in the pocket in a first cluster of six. The first cluster of three, one, two, and three would be two undefeated teams. This well, is they're, a cluster. They're, they're clusters. They're in <laughs> I, clusters. I know. They're, I'm just laughing at the idea of clusters. So there's a couple funny. of undefeated teams, and then heck, let's say there's even three undefeated teams. The true doomsday. All right, now you've got <laughs> three one-loss teams. <laughs> There's three one-loss teams in teams four, five, and six. The committee has to select who Oregon's is the best one-loss team. Oregon's not getting in. I not over Ohio State. That. Not over Ohio State. I don't know about that. I do. I think the head-to-head, because at that point, if head-to-head winning at Ohio State doesn't matter at that point, it won't. Because it'll, it'll have been in then September. Why, then Aaron, then why are we playing the games? It'll have, because without that win, Oregon would have no shot of being considered because the rest of their schedule is garbage. So the, my point is, is that when you look at the resume at the end of the season, Oregon will have a good win over Ohio State. No doubt about that, but that would have been in September. And if you look at overall resume, Ohio State will have played a far tougher schedule and have far more quality wins. So it's almost like, like okay, I had to go play six ranked teams. You played At the end of the season, six ranked teams, you played two. You had a far easier path than me, but you did beat me. But I also blew out the bad teams, and you struggled with the bad teams. Which team's really better? If I'm on the committee, which team's really better? If they play, if Ohio State and Oregon played 10 times, who am I taking in that series? I'm taking Ohio State to win eight. So but I, they don't believe, play ten times. I know. They don't but play I in a hypothetical vacuum. They don't the play com- in a simulation. The cons- they played on September the eleventh, two thousand twenty-one. It won't matter at noon Eastern <laughs> in matter. the Horseshoe, and one team won and one team lost. It won't matter. Period. Okay, we'll see. Well, we might, we'll we see. might see, or we might let's, not. But let's, uh, let's, we can, we can sure mark we it down this, here. Let's um, wrap this segment yeah. so we can refer to it. Andrew seen our podcast. I was going to say we can mark it down. Mark it down on October twenty-six. <laughs> For when the Selection Sunday shows up, if we have this scenario, Aaron is telling you Ducks fans, uh, plan for the Rose Bowl. That's what he's talking about. Exactly. Uh, exactly. To the game specifically, right, speaking the of the Rose Bowl, <laughs> to the game specifically. Well, okay, we know, again, we're not going to bury, let's not, let's not bury the, the, the lead of, you know, what fans are, are talking about from hey, you this you know, perspective. Just but uh, look, it is what it is. I mean, fans I are talking about it in the same way. And the national That's conversation, right. much as I, we may loathe the reality of it, uh, the playoff <laughs> takes all of the, you know, oxygen out of the room from a, uh, from a standpoint of actually getting into some of this stuff. You know, it's not even yeah. about the game and the outcomes and how they got there. It's just about, you know, who's going to make mean? the playoff and, you know, the second week of the season. You're listening to Ducks Confidential. We'll be back after a quick break. To the game itself at the Rose Bowl. Defensively, Kayvon Thibodeau had statistically uh, the best performance of his career, nine tackles, four and a half for loss, two sacks. And they it, it, it was truly two sacks because of the vantage point we're in. It was hard at times to tell on the third one where you got one of the tackles for loss on, on DTR, where it was an RPO, where it absolutely was going to be a run. So, yes, it is two sacks. Uh, and first full game start to bottom uh, of the season for him, and it was just absolutely 
dominant fourth quarter, was relentless, uh, came away with some just terrific plays, dominated, uh, drew a ton of attention, uh, obviously, throughout the course of the game. Your view and analyses of the way that not just this team's best player played, but I don't even think there's an argument at this point. He's the best defensive player in the sport this season. I, I'm just I'm not shocked by what he was able to do because we've all seen glimpses of that um, throughout his career that he can just dominate a game. I'm just shocked that UCLA didn't do more to help their tackles on some plays, especially when they knew they were going downfield, when they were calling intermediate or deep routes, and they knew their quarterback was going to take his drop and then maybe take a hitch or two and throw it, and you had Kayvon one-on-one with the tackle. It was just like, what are you doing? You're going to get your poor quarterback killed, and they did. Plus, other pass rushers were uh, creating pressure as well. But, yeah, he was just, like I said it earlier, I mean, I'm going old school on this, but it was almost like the Lawrence Taylor days where it didn't matter what teams tried to do. He was at, at the very least going to create pressure and make things happen. And he did that. And it was phenomenal to watch. And it also, it's one thing to do that during the course of a game. And then the game ends and you look back, oh, he had a good game. But it was a game where you were trying to hold on to a lead. And the other team was throwing a lot, trying to come back. And your offense gave them opportunities for, in the fourth quarter with two interceptions. Um, obviously, they converted on one of them. The second one, they did not. But the point is, is that they Kayvon was on the field most of the fourth quarter pinning his ears back and trying to get to the quarterback and clearly was gassed, but kept finding the reserves to do it again and again and again. He said after the game, what do you say? I feel like my blood sugar is low. I'm so tired. And that was already what, 45 minutes after the game, maybe 30 minutes after the game. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it, it was, a, it was an amazing performance. But again, there was one time in particular that it was third and 10 and they had the back on the other side, not even on Kayvon's side. And he went into the middle to pick up a middle blitz. And Kayvon just ran right around the right tackle and just smashed the quarterback. I'm like, what are you thinking, Chip? Come on. You're supposed to be the guru, the genius. It's almost like he didn't watch the Cal game. It's almost like he's like, yeah, I'm too busy watching Friends reruns or something. Because if I'm watching that Cal game and I'm playing Kayvon the next week, if I'm running any pass play where I have multiple receivers going downfield, I'm either having a back going into the flat on his side and chipping him on the way out, or I'm just keeping a back or a tight end in to help with him. I'm not putting my quarterback in that type of position. But credit to Kayvon. He even said something, too, about, hey, I, if they're giving me one-on-one, I'm going to take it. It almost seemed like he was surprised at times that he was in one-on-one situations so much. Yeah, I mean, and he's, he's talked about that before, and that's where that particular part came up. Was There's a question literally to the point of, like, are you surprised you even get as many one-on-ones as you get right now? And, right. and that's where he was talking about that. So, yeah, I mean, he talked in the preseason back at Pac-12 Media Day about, you know, if I was an opposing coordinator, I'd double me on game because, you know, why, why wouldn't you? Um, <laughs> that's so, so serious. And that's, but you know, it's right. He's but, not wrong. But point is, yeah, on that play in particular <laughs> that you're referencing, um, I, I, I tweeted out the video of it. Uh, I did not I, – I don't make a point of calling out, but one – it, sh- it showed two things. Complete and utter um, malpractice by the UCLA <laughs> coaching staff. Uh, again, inclu- including the offensive genius. Um, but uh, uh, because that right tackle went down earlier in the game. Uh-huh. Now, hey, all right, good to hear he wasn't seriously hurt and he got back in. But given that he had tweaked something earlier in the game and it wasn't serious, but he tweaked something. And then you're putting him back out there having tweaked something up against the best defensive player in the sport and leaving him on an island. That's why I say it's malpractice. Secondly, the running back, as you mentioned, 
lines up to the left of DTR. And I understand that his initial read on the situation is probably to look in the A-gaps and Noah was blitzing. However, when you know that Kayvon Thibodeau is on the other side and initially on the snap, I don't know if it was Charbonnet or Brown, it doesn't matter. The running back looks to the right and I think basically makes either a split second decision and just goes, all right, well, that's okay. So therefore, I'm going to slide over here where there was not an imminent threat. Or it was a just straight business decision of, okay, so I'm going to look over here now. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, but bottom line, well, if he's on the left, left side, though, it's really hard to go all the way over to the right side. You want to scheme on, it. On, you want to scheme it. Yeah, to just have in your general, back over in there. general, yes. So in I'm general, saying, I don't yes. think I don't think I don't think he had that. I don't think that was his responsibility at all to go no, to the side because if it's but, your responsibility to help, you put him over there. So that's what I'm saying. Right. It goes back to what you're but saying presence, about what Chip was presence doing. of mind, but presence but, of mind as the know, back in that situation. Forget about what the read but, is. But Sometimes you just say like, "Wow, the guy made a football play. That back did not make the right." Football play. He made a file that is assignment exactly right. Graded out hundred okay, percent. Did everything perfect. Except not, you didn't yeah. do everything perfect. He didn't get after that guy. That's yeah, the but, that's where I say. You have to have mentally go like, all right, I know what my assignment is. But if that dude what if KT just blo- he did run through him, but what if he literally ran through him? What if he knocked Anderson just you know, completely end over end and knocks him clear over? The right assignment for the back, to your point, is to look on the left or in the middle. So you should just not even look that way. You should have blinders on. You and just go, I, I didn't see it. Didn't see it. Didn't see it. Like he initially looks, but he initially looks right or wrong at the right side of the line to the point where he very well could have, if he wanted to chip or help on that side. Now I'm not telling you he would have been anything more than a speed bump on the way. But bottom line, I'm just, I'm just they, they put him, you, they put you, their quarterback teach- in a position to get hit on that play. And he did. I understand, but when you, when you teach your backs protection, their protection rules, the last thing you ever want is for them to make a decision outside of those rules. Because if they're making those types of decisions, event, it's inevitable that they're going to make the wrong decisions and screw right. up other things as well. That's why I'm saying it's absolutely. Oh, shift. if he does that, if he goes and thinks too much about KT, and then Noah comes down and you go, "What are you doing?" Are you doing? Yeah, I, right, exactly. Yes, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. What's funny is that on the next possession, they did have the back on a third and long, or they at least went downfield. They did have the back help. And the quarterback completed a, a play downfield for like I think 15 yards, and then they went away from it again. Like I, just, I was just baffled by it because I'm just like devoting. I'm saying protect against Kayvon first. Everything else we don't care about. And if they, here's the other thing too: if they blitz, if they bring backers, then a slot or a tight end should be running a hot route anyway, and then you just throw it into the vacant space. And now you're now they're they're leaving you holes. You're throwing it into those holes. You're throwing it, and so now Kayvon's irrelevant, irrelevant because he's not going to get to your quarterback in time before he can throw that quick pass, which is basically what, who did to Oregon? Stanford. That's what Stanford did in that final drive. Oregon was bringing pressure. Even when Kayvon was out there, they were snap the ball, one step, slant, one step, post, one step, slant. That's all they did down the field. And Chip was even trying to do that. I just don't think Chip watched game film on Oregon and Kayvon this year. I really don't because I just am amazed that he allowed that to happen. They did neutralize him early, and a couple of times they did manage to neutralize him on some of those screens and those sorts of things, like you mentioned. Well, screen, yeah, that's nothing. Where were the screens in the second they, half, they, in the fourth quarter? They, they did try to do a couple of those things, for one. Two, um, for all the multi-tight ends and unbalanced and all the gimmicks that, that they try to pull, 
None of it was really successful. None of it at all. And, now, it. and a lot Zero. of that was out of desperation. And, and uh, well, they did a lot of it early to, to help them gain the lead that they got. But, um, no, the, all, the, all their gimmicks, all their unbalanced, all their tackle eligible and, and, and all that nonsense that they throw out there and eye candy and, and you know, alignment, uh, trickeration, all that stuff didn't mean a lick. Uh, and it didn't mean a lick not just to the outcome or to creating some of those plays uh, or explosive plays, certainly. Uh, it didn't mean a lick because Oregon had a obscene 14 tackles for loss. And yes, KT had four and a half of them and freed up a lot of the other defensive linemen for the tackles for loss that they had. 14 tackles for loss. This is against a team in UCLA who has one of the better offensive lines in the league, one of the more experienced lines in the league, one of the better offensive line coaches in the league, and one of the best rushing attacks in the league thanks to that offensive line. And they hadn't had allowed a lot of pressure on DTR. I thought it was 11. 14 in the uh, uh, in the box score, but I think there was there might have been one where there was a, a uh, on one of the uh, either the fumble or change of play. But but ultimately, it's 14. Anyway, they had a lot. The, <laughs> the whole lot. bunch doesn't matter, right? And and four sacks for again KT had two of them, so they created a ridiculous amount of pressure throughout the course of the game, starting with him, but it was more than him, and all the stuff that Chip tried to throw at them. Really wasn't all that effective, and it it came across in, in a volume of ways, uh, and I think that for as dominant as he was, and as dominant as the defense was at times, to me the most impressive part was their ability to contain the run. You know, for, we can talk about all the disruption and, and the sacks and all those things, but I, I think it had to start with being able to stop the run and limiting limiting that rushing attack to less than two and a half yards for carry. And and when you have a dual threat quarterback who made some plays along the way and credit to Dorian Thompson Robinson for the toughness that he showed throughout the course of the game. And he was, he was terrific. Absolutely terrific. Made some plays, kept them in the game, uh, obviously kept them in the game late, but without him, I mean, there's, there's no chance. I mean, the, the game is, is completely, uh, it's a whole other kind of game. I mean, if it, and I'm not knocking Ethan Garbers because he's a young quarterback and played a lot, but if Ethan Garbers is the starter the whole time, I mean, that, that game is, is a route. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it, it just is because stylistically the way they would have played. DTR did things that were, were unbelievable to keep them in that game. Made some terrific plays, uh, the various different scrambles and runs that he had to either convert on fourth down, convert on third and longs. And he kept plays alive with his legs. He did a lot of things that to avoided pressure on occasion, rarely, but on occasion, uh, but it all started with slowing down the run. And Charbonnet and Brown, yes, Brown had a couple of one-yard touchdown runs, but Charbonnet and Brown to combine for 80 yards on 28 carries. I mean, there's, it, it's hard to even say that the coaching staff could have drawn up a better scenario for Oregon's defense. So that was, to me, that was the most impressive thing collectively for the Oregon defense. After Thibodeau's individual performance, I thought the – collective stopping the run and bottling up of the run game was it may have been the difference quite honestly because without that ucla is is sustaining a couple more drives without that uh their their 91 plays is my goodness who knows what it could have looked like if it would have been if they would have been actually gaining yards on the ground um so no just say i thought that was 
by far and away, not just their best performance of the season statistically, but when you can, again consider that this was the best rushing attack that they had played so far this season. And when you get into looking ahead against teams like, all right, again, forget about the fact that Colorado's not any good, but they do have two good running backs, though their production has not been there. And that Washington State has two good running backs, though it's not exactly the way they're built to be around them. I, I thought it would be more, but it hasn't been. But when you get later in the season, and Oregon State and what they do, this was the first truly big-time positive performance against a legitimate rushing attack for this defense, where you go, all right. You know, we talked about how all the tight end sets was a problem for them, that they had no answer for it. That This was the first week. And they had their edge guys back, which was a big part of why. Right. <laughs> that they were able to create a lot of that pressure and bottle up the run. I, I think those were enormous and gives, if you're a Ducks fan, that should give you a, a legitimate shot of optimism when it comes to down the road. There were times in that fourth quarter, too, when it was clear that they were struggling to protect. And even though they needed to throw, they called run plays because they were, I thought at times they were scared to throw the ball. So they're calling run plays, maybe hoping to catch Oregon since Oregon might be thinking pass. And it just didn't matter. Like, they just, they just couldn't get any, any you know, real good chunks of yards. They might pick up two, three, or four here or there. But Oregon was just dialed in all over it. So I, I agree with you 100% there that that, that literally set the tone for everything else and put UCLA in a lot of bad situations. And, and then, of course, allowed Kayvon to run amok. And everyone else, too. Um, Dorless had a good game. Swinson, too. Um, yeah, it was, it was an impressive performance. Still, they gave up points. They gave up yards. But it could have been a lot worse. Yeah, but the yards, again, 352 on 91 plays. Yeah, and that's that's, that's less than four yards a play. That's that's that, that, that's not bad. That's terrific. I mean, that's, that's a unbelievable um, volume. So, last thing to me on the defense is just simply – the, I mean, again, we talk about looking ahead too. We talked about having the edge guys back, and what would it mean? I just hit on it, but if we get past Thibodeau alone, as incredible as he was, having him and Swinson and Adrian Jackson Jr. had a terrific game. Played his <laughs> yeah. most snaps since 2018. Remember, he missed he missed 19 and 20 basically entire seasons due to injuries. He was, as a true freshman at 18, a, a flashy playmaker at times as he came on as a true freshman. He went from, all right, we're just trying to get him in here as a designated pass rusher, pin your ears back, third and long, go and do that five, six, seven times a game, to playing a high volume of snaps, particularly once Funa went down, and made real plays real impact i'm not saying everything was perfect again him and verone missed dtr in the fourth and two where both of them are kicking themselves about the play fine it's gonna happen and i happen to credit dtr more than than not the defenders on the play i know that they lost leverage and contain but but ultimately again dtr did spectacular spectacular an incredible athlete a good made a player play. made a play yeah like so so be it um but but jackson played a terrific game and having the three of them together in particular in dime and on third and long along with doorless in the front and Noah as the lone linebacker there forget about in the pack 12 you're going to be hard pressed outside of Georgia to find a better front five in third and long 
than that combination. You just are. Outside of the Georgia defense, which is obviously pretty unbelievable, you are going to have a very, very hard time coming up with a better combination of talent in that scenario than what Oregon has there. Forget, Like I say, forget about the Pac-12. There is nobody in the Pac-12 who comes close in that. Zero. There's no one who's close. Not, not even remotely so. That, in terms of the rest of the season and anything that may happen postseason, that's what gives this team legitimate chances to, to make and win a conference title again, to make the playoff, to be a national title contender. Yes, those are the things. We talk about what do they do well, what, do, what could they be dominant in. That's dominant. That's, <laughs> that's what could be dominant when you start getting ahead. And what they missed in the first half when we were asking, what is this team great at? What could they be dominant at? That's what they didn't have. And you saw statistically what it looks like when they're together. Now, again, we got to see what it looks like week after week after week and when other opponents might better prepare for, <laughs> for that you know, possibility. But that was a real, uh, like I say, shot in the arm for the defense. And a big, uh, again, source of optimism if you're a Ducks fan, certainly going forward for the defense. Offensively, Anthony Brown has one of his better statistical games, if not his best statistical game, until the late interceptions. We'll get into those, I'm sure. What did you, and then obviously the the rushing touchdown at the start of the fourth quarter that proved to be and held to be the game winner again. So third game-winning run for him on the season. So... Broad picture again, because we don't want to drill into the interceptions to the umpteenth degree. We'll get into them. But, the you know, he threw 39 times. We're not going to make it about two throws. Your assessment of Oregon's quarterback this week. He played really well, man. And the most impressive part, it's impressive because we hadn't seen much of it, is was being able to throw the ball to the intermediate routes. I don't think – he didn't complete many – how many – Pass, there were no compl- passes completed where they were in the air 40 yards, right? Or 40? No, not 30 40. Or 40. 30 or 40. They, they, the pass to Devin down the left sideline was, was the, on, the, on the one where they had the free play on the offsides that they declined. That was a 32-yard pass. And that was in the air for game. thirty for thirty for thirty yards. Yeah, okay, that was and, the only one. Yeah, yeah because okay, Devin, Devin didn't run; he caught it and fell. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah, so, yeah. It was, it was the, so, and if but, you get into the drop back, it really probably was in the air for forty yards. Right, but he was hitting intermediate routes, especially in the third quarter. When they came out in the third quarter and they started just marching down the field, and they were expanding the passing game, that was that jumped out because you hadn't seen much of that over the course of the season to that point. So I I thought he played really well. Now he didn't he didn't throw, you know touchdown passes because you know die had four rushing etc but he set those up like his right, I, was just saying, I mean a couple of them it was kind of like yeah he didn't but hudson gets down to the one like right exactly yeah. like so, yeah. so it's, it's almost like one of those situations where yeah he doesn't have touchdown passes in the box score but he led drives and then die finished them off that's why i thought it was funny when people were you know raving about dies four touchdowns it's like okay yeah he had four touchdowns set up by the passing game but anyway the bottom line is it doesn't matter how you score you score and then the legs man th- to make big plays in the, in the running game we all know he struggled with some reads <laughs> i've seen you go off about it numerous of times where he misses the obvious pitch to to verdell for, for a touchdown but he made some nice reads in terms of keeping it for himself and taking off of course the touchdown run etc like it, it was just a more complete football game by him by far Maybe it's a sign of growth and improvement by him and the receivers. And Mario said after the game, 
someone asked him about the, the two the two picks are inconsistencies. He said, "Hey, we got to run the right routes. We have to do certain things better." He he said the play call on the pass to the end zone to Devin, which just blew my mind. They called that. He said they wanted to have that back. They were kind of going you know going for the knockout blow or whatever. But I you know. I, Brown even said, I think himself, he should have ran on that one, not thrown it. Yes, but that I doesn't... think he meant. I think he meant that he should have ran on the on the first other pick one on the first one. Okay, I, I didn't know because on that play he only had one receiver to that side, and he could and it, he could have run to the left. There was no one out there. The, 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 the one to Devin. The, I think the yeah yes yes he could have run on the play right and in theory should have run on the play. The reason because the thing was after the game they said. On one, I should have run. On the other one, there was a miscommunication with the receiver. And it wasn't right. a quarterback issue. That's what Mario said. And then and then Brown said, one, I should have run. The other will clean up on film. Right. He's not so he's talking. Receiver. And that's, that's so, code for bad. Yeah, so, exactly. Bad route. So, and then when you go back and watch it, one and a half slash two steps into the route on the second interception, Johnny Johnson's arms are out like, what are we doing? Oh, okay. And that's where I say, I think that that was the one where there was confusion with the receivers as a whole, that something was awry. We're not going to debate about the result. The result was wrong and everything. It was more about process than merely the play itself. Everything about the play was messed up. Don't get us wrong. The process was the first thing. Why are you even putting the ball in the air? And that's what... Mario owned up to yesterday was saying they, because they were uh, they were yeah, they we were bro- they were moving on that drive like they they were moving yeah well down uh, the except field. for the, except for the play but right before that which I think was a one yard run so which made right well, well yeah I mean that's going to happen but yes but, they, the but drive yes, was yes. was rolling like there was no reason to go away from running or or short passes the biggest thing was there was no reason to go away from it when UCLA has one timeout left there's three oh seven on the clock exactly run tackle for loss who cares I don't care if you take a knee all right. Time out again. All right. Well, now there's approximately 305, 303, three minutes left and they have no timeouts. Run again. All right. Well, now there's 220. And even if you punt, you've left them with no timeouts and a two minute drive versus one timeout and three minutes. Big difference. Big difference. So. So here, hold, that's hold where on, you get real, into real the. So here's, yeah. here's that drive. Brown rushes for 28, dive for five. Short pass for four, uh, short rush for two, pass for four, Brown for seven for the first down, rush for one, and then pick. <laughs> like it made no sense. You were you were matriculating down the field as uh, Hank Stram would uh, said back in Super Bowl was that four or whatever. But anyway, I, it was shocking. But they they all owned it. Like the coaches didn't make excuses about it. Like yeah, we screwed that one up. So such is life. As I say it starts there on that on the on the final pick. Now, again, you can get into, yeah, but he shouldn't have thrown it anyway. You're right. He shouldn't have thrown it. He shouldn't have. But yeah. he shouldn't have been asked to throw it in the first place. So yeah. everything about it was a, a, a calamity on the final interception. And <laughs> they owned it. It was. It was a mess. <laughs> everything about it was a mess. It was a bad decision. It was bad strategy. It was bad execution. It was probably <laughs> bad routes and or confusion. It was generally not good. <laughs> so everybody owned it. You move on. You just say, like, all right, right. like, oh, well, it could cost them. And they've shown that. Yeah, well, again, shake your fist in the air all you want and say how it's going to be the Achilles heel that holds them back and it has them before and everything. Yes, you're right. You're right. I, 
But they, they won, won the, game. the I mean, game. They won the game. Like, I, I mean, you, you want to give it back? I mean, it's just, <laughs> like they, they won the game. The game is over. Um, so, again, yes, the interceptions happened. But as a whole, to me, I mean, third quarter, uh, that was uh, – he, he literally can't do better than what he did in the third quarter. I mean, 10 completions for, you know, over 100 yards is just – it was otherworldly um, from the from <laughs> the third quarter that he did. I mean, literally, he could he could not play the third quarter better than what he did statistically. It was it was incredible, uh, and it, and it allowed them to completely uh, take ownership and and momentum in the game. And then the touchdown to start the fourth, that run of dominance there from the third into the beginning of the fourth, swung the game entirely, and and ultimately proves to be the difference again uh, in the end where he has three rushing touchdowns in fourth quarters that have proven to be game winners that, you know, you may not like everything about him. You may not like his decision-making earlier in the season. You may think that there are better quarterbacks to be had in the country or even on this team. But I'll tell you one thing. And this isn't, I would say this about any freshman quarterback, any freshman quarterback. There is no freshman quarterback in, especially on this roster right now, but Really, I'm not sure even Caleb Williams, for those who are jumping out on him, I don't think a freshman quarterback would win that game. With what UCLA was doing, uh, with what UCLA was doing from a pressure standpoint, from from yeah, the like chaos Caleb, that they were causing, yeah. and with three offensive linemen going down in the game, um, I don't think that the, there, there were decisions made by Brown in that game, both on the ground true. and in the air, that I don't think a freshman quarterback makes successfully. And I don't think a freshman quarterback reels off 10 straight completions against UCLA's defense in the third quarter with what their defense is doing. Yeah, I don't, but, Williams, but Williams might have had them up four touchdowns. <laughs> in the second half, so it might not have mattered. But who knows? Oh, yeah, but yeah. definitely. Bottom line. Ty Thompson loses that game. I'll say I mean, that I, sure. I, I don't. I don't. I, I to me, I, I, that's why I make it more generic. I don't think it's about any one indiv- individual. Just the aspect of I think an experienced quarterback showed and came up with some plays, and that's what you have to just kind of bank on right now. Uh, you know, if you're a Ducks fan, again, you could be just, convinced about the relative quality of of this quarterback compared to others. And again, I'm not professing that he's he's a first round pick or something. He is not. He is not. But what he does give you is dual threat ability and he made a lot of a lot of good decisions over the course of the game yeah the interceptions no question no no argument but otherwise he on this on the whole on the body of work over the entirety of the game he made a lot of really good decisions he did he makes those are things that as a that a that a veteran quarterback did and he did in that game there have been games where he's not made all pristine decisions he made a lot of good decisions in the game he did. But I'm just saying, I don't, I'm not going to buy the Williams aspect. You put Williams in this offense with those receivers and his ability to make plays with his, with his legs, which is better than Brown's. And I don't even think it's a contest in the fourth quarter. So you're not needing a veteran to lead you down the, the road. But that said, Brown did his job. He's the quarterback. Like people just have to just get over it. He's the quarterback. If they put Ty Thompson in, if Ty Thompson had started this entire season, they wouldn't be six and one. You know, let's just say that outright. What would they be? Three and Three and four, maybe. That's I mean, that's not inconceivable. As much as much as much as I'm hearing about how unready and unprepared he is to run this offense, yes, they could be three and four right now. They lose Ohio State, definitely. They probably 
lose to, uh, they lost to Stanford anyway. They lose to UCLA. So that's at least three losses. So maybe four and three, maybe four and three. So everyone needs to rally around Brown the rest of the season. Ty Thompson's not going to replace him. He's Brown's getting better, accept it, and just let the Ty Thompson stuff just die. There'll be a conversation and an argument and a debate about quarterbacks in the offseason. You worry about <laughs> It'll it It'll be then. a good one too. <laughs> we worry about it then. Right now, there's no argument to be had. This is this this wagon has been hitched. This is this is done. This is as far as this season is concerned. There is no there's no conversation to be had. None, zero. This team is what it is right now. The way it's composed, and particularly at the quarterback position, at running back, Travis has his four touchdowns, getting FBS record out of that. Uh, the yards weren't there in part because on those four touchdowns for 11 yards, uh, he ran 100% <laughs> of the yards he could run, but there was 11 yards to be had. So, okay. Um, but yes, he obviously had a few others that were, you know, not as prolific from that standpoint, but also had some receptions that were quite good. Uh, and again, the offensive line was as banged up as it was, yet didn't allow a ton of pressure on Brown uh, and really not a lot of tackles for loss in the run game either. And that Travis had a migraine pregame. To where that was a question as to like, oh, is this gonna, is this gonna, <laughs> what? I, I did like Mario's line after the game when he goes, and uh, I was waiting for the punchline. Uh, exactly. <laughs> can you imagine if Travis isn't in the game? Oh can God. you? I mean, quite literally, imagine a scenario where if Travis Dye is not able to play. On I think Jalen Red played some. Run- like. Jalen Red played running back in high school. Put him back there. Yeah, <laughs> but some of the pass pro that Dye <laughs> yeah, had that in that game. Well. Um, against Bo Calvert, that would have been uh, pretty ugly uh, yeah. for some of the other players that they could have thrown back there. So now what Ty did uh, again, yes, the, touchdown, the touchdowns. It was it was short yardage touchdowns, but it was touchdowns. Uh, but again, he he played again to me. He played he played a great game, albeit a not as productive game. And frankly, a game that I think he needed, not just for the production, not just for okay, yeah, he won in Los Angeles and and beating UCLA and Troy's there and the the family had a a whole bunch of people there. All those things. Yes. On that, on the human level, all those things are true. On the football level, I think he needed a game where he had less than 20 touches (laughs) because we've talked about the workload that he's having to shoulder here. And yes, for the touches that he did have were for less yards, which I think he needed a game where, he didn't have 22 and 24 touches in a game. Now, he still had 18, which is still ahead of where his average was before CJ got hurt. But I think he needed a game where the workload was not as onerous because otherwise, when you, when you start getting into like the wear and tear that he's going to get over the second half of the season, it's, it's enormous. So I think as a whole, yes, he played well, obviously super productive, scored up a whole bunch of touchdowns. But in the big picture, I think the other important part was 18 touches and four of them maxed out at 11 yards. I think that preserves him better in the long run, uh, which is, again, positive for that standpoint. In the receiving game, Devin Williams and Micah Pittman both catching five passes. Williams, again, the big one down the left sideline. Pittman, uh, a nearly 30-yard pass, 29-yard catch over the middle on what was a really nice throw by Brown over the linebacker uh, and, and fitting it in perfectly in space. Two receivers who we've talked about how this receiving core is really reliant on Johnny Johnson, the third and Jalen red in particular, and that 
basically nobody else in the receiving core outside of the two super seniors had really separated themselves. Starting to see now the last couple of weeks that Devin Williams is starting to put together some performances. Micah with the most receptions of his career in this game. Again, don't get ahead of your skis. We're already this far into the season, and we've seen this from Devin before, and then he got nicked up late last season, and then he fell off again. So I get like, hey, you know, we've seen it before. We've either seen it before, or it's only one game in, in Pittman's case, so let's not get, you know, rushing ahead of ourselves. Right. But they did have five catches apiece, and they were targeted more. And these are things that this offense needs. It needs more much more contribution from more than Johnson and Red at the receiver position. It got it. It needs it going forward badly. Devin just, to me, he's the most, well, I, I can't say I've seen enough of all the other youngsters, but based on what I've seen, he's, to me, the most talented and gifted receiver on the roster. When he makes a play, it jumps out. Like It's like, especially with how mediocre the passing game has been, he, he catches the ball and the way he accelerates at his size, the plays he can make downfield with his size and leaping ability, athleticism. He was the number two rated athlete in the country coming out when he went to SC and then transferred to Oregon. Like, it just jumps out like, holy crap, get that guy the ball. <clears throat> and when you have him out there, if he's out wide, his vertical threat ability, plus even if he's covered, like there was a back shoulder pass. There have been a couple of back shoulder passes this year down the sideline that were Brown has just thrown it to him and Devin makes the play. Uh, he can go up and get it. Like he's just gonna, he can change their entire offense because you can throw those 50 50 balls, which you've talked about the lack of 50 50 balls for this, this team this season. He's more like a 75 25 ball guy <laughs> because of his athleticism. So yeah, they can get him more involved if he's healthy and, or I've, you know, I've heard numerous times that he's had some maturity issues and things like that, which have held him back as well. But if he is going to be the Devin Williams we've seen the last couple of weeks, that changes everything. It's going to help Michael Pittman. It's almost like you can have all these other receivers, Pittman, Red, Johnson, all the smaller guys, just play around Devin, clearing things out for them and just being a guy that teams are going to have to account for. Um, it just changes everything to me. And I, I hope for Oregon's sake that it's Devin Williams' time, time now because if it is, and Brown clearly likes throwing the ball to him, it opens up the passing game immensely. I agree 100%. I think for Devin Williams, I, I, frankly, I think for both of them. I'm not even going to make it into it again. I, I think for a lot of this receiving core, a lot of this receiving core, but these are not two freshmen. You know, Pittman is a third year sophomore. So, and and because of the amount of games that he has missed, uh, to, you know, the first two seasons between injuries and, and contact tracing and everything else that came up uh, and Williams having to sit out the year when he transferred and all those things. So from a game experience standpoint, neither of them have a ample amount of game experience compared to uh, players who are like, like aged uh, elsewhere in the country who just played more games. They haven't. But but between them, uh, and I want I, I to say about the freshman receivers because they're, they're so young in, in, in general that I think it's just a, not just a game experience standpoint. I think it's just they, they haven't been a lot in college football just yet. Um, I think that for those two in particular, them and players like them across the country, I think that their own worst enemy is between their own ears. Their physical abilities, I don't think there's an argument to be had here that, as you mentioned, I think Devin Williams and I think Micah Pittman are the two most physically gifted and talented receivers. I haven't seen the freshmen to that point yet. They may grow and develop and exceed these two in time. But on the roster right now, Williams and Pittman are the two most physically gifted and talented receivers, have the best pro potential 
in the receiving court today. Today, I'm not talking about Franklin and Thornton and Brevard in the long run. I don't. I don't know. But, but there's blocking. But there's the way you approach the game and the game on a play-to-play basis and practice on a day-to-day basis and those things. And when you hear things from the coaching staff talking about Devin going back even two weeks ago about, well, how do you put himself in position against Cal? Who, who, who did it? For, he did it. He did it. What does that mean? Well, he needed it to, to light a fire up under him. And you heard that last year. Well, some of that is a little bit of youth. Some of that's a little immaturity. Some of that's a little bit of mental approach. That goes for, by the way, lots of other players in that position offensively defensively that's that's college football but you've seen it with him in particular over the course of his career already and that's why i say you've seen it before last year okay well now hopefully that fire doesn't go out anytime soon um and i think that the tape has shown it so i don't think this is in any way speaking out of school here or being un, un overly critical uh i think micah Pittman has shown over the last season plus that at times his blocking leaves much to be desired at times at times, not every time, he's made plenty of solid and strong blocks too, but at times that has been problematic. Last year and earlier this year. That's crazy to me too because he, he's a very physical guy. Like I'm sure you watch video of him built playing safety. As such, yes. You ever see, he is, you see yes. video of him playing safety in high school? Like he, he loved to hit and make contact, and so I'm surprised by that, but go ahead. But on Saturday, I think you saw the best top to bottom Cross the board, blocking game from the Oregon receiving core as a whole. As a whole. Mm-hmm. Not going to get into individuals. Look, Johnny had <laughs> great blocks early in the season. Red had great blocks early in the season. Um, Devin had one here or there. Hudson had some good blocks early in the season. Not going to get into individual play by play by play, who won, who <laughs> lost, etc. I think collectively that might have been the best outside blocking game by Oregon's receivers on the season. When you do those things, those open because look at how much they went to screens. Screens to Devin, screens to Red, screens to Hudson. And it relies on the other receivers blocking for those guys. And I think you saw that a lot on Saturday. And I think you saw a collective effort by everyone in the receiving core that you hadn't seen at times earlier this season. Now, you got to see it every single week. We hadn't seen it every single week. I think you're starting to see it, and I think that is helping and leading to their increased volume of production and opportunities. That one leads to the other. You're not going to have the opportunities if you ain't blocking. And you're not even going to be called on to block if you either can't do it or you're not necessarily a viable option to receive either. So I think those two guys are guys who this team needs much more from. Uh, certainly, they are physically capable of it. They showed it. Now they need to show it on a week-to-week basis, but that was a huge positive sign to me. If it, the, Oregon's going to have... It is going to be very, very difficult for anybody on Oregon's remaining schedule to beat the Ducks, not just in general, but to beat them if Williams and Pittman are combined for 10 catches on a week-to-week basis. That's it's going to be very hard. Yep. Very hard. That's that is a massive key. Well, just yeah. like Travis Dye scoring is a massive key, and 200 yards rushing is a massive key. If Pittman and Williams are combining for 10 catches and 150 total yards of offense, I don't know if anybody on the remaining schedule is going to beat them. I agree with you because the, the one thing that's been really holding them back has been a more dynamic passing game, and those are 
two of your, two of your more dynamic receivers. Three, yeah, I mean, the two of your most dynamic receivers are those two guys. And to me, Devin Williams is the most dynamic when he's when he's on. So, yeah, 100%. Yeah, they, they need him. Now, for briefly, much like the Arizona week, briefly for Colorado because quite literally, unfortunately for Colorado, um, it is also a massive rebuild. And I, I actually happen to like Carl Durrell just in terms of uh, uh, the way he has approached the the process, not every single thing, not everything he said, not the post game little running he had with the photographer a couple of weeks ago and stuff, but in general, in, inheriting a big rebuild and how he's going about these things. Um, they had a terrific lightning a bottle year last season. This season is uh, very much not that way, so that's why we are spending only a couple of minutes here on Colorado. Um, it is what it is. They're a team that is. I, I don't know if they've even established an offensive identity. It was supposed to be on the ground. They have Fontenot and Broussard. Two really good and productive running backs. Not outstanding, otherworldly. No, but two productive running backs. And a team that's supposed to be built to run the football. Haven't had the success on the ground. In part, that has been because they have a freshman quarterback who started a couple of games at the end of last season. They stuck with him. Then they also brought in a transfer who got hurt, which didn't help the cause. And Brandon Lewis, you got to call it what it is. He's a freshman who is experiencing everything that a freshman experiences. Statistically speaking, he's the worst quarterback in this league. He is the least accurate. He's the least efficient. He's the least productive. Now, the one thing, having said all that, that Colorado does not do, even with this freshman quarterback. Turn over the ball? Turn over the ball. (laughs) Three games where they do not have a turnover committed. Three. That's impressive. So, even... This is a team that doesn't beat themselves by turnovers. Right. They beat themselves in other ways, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they don't. They don't beat themselves by turnovers. So you can't rely on. They're going to err on the side of conservative, uh, whether that be with the run game or with really short routes. Having said that, they also have Brendan Rice at receiver, Jerry Rice's son, who has some incredible top end speed. Is their dynamic kick returner as well? So they do have an explosive receiver who. Doesn't necessarily have the stats to prove that point, but I promise you, he has some really elite top-end speed. If you go back and watch some of the highlights from last season in particular, watch the Colorado-Utah game from last year and some of the plays he made in that game. Forget about what the outcomes are and wins and losses. Brendan Rice is a problem. Um, so Oregon is legitimately going to have to cover him. They have the corners to do it, but they are going to have to cover him. Again, they do have some solid running backs. It's just that the success has not been there. Having said that, I think we both agree this should not just be an Oregon win, even compared to the Arizona game. Schematically and strategically, what Arizona did, uh, I don't think Colorado can even attempt to replicate, and certainly even if they did, I don't think they could find the same scale of success. I got nothing else to add to that, man. Yeah, that's why we say we keep we're keeping this one brief on Colorado because what are we going to say? We're going to we're going to tell you. Well, it's a, it's a twenty six point score. line. Yeah, you know, come on, it's a four score. You know, score. betting like they 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 can't. They this can't. is the game, this is the game though. They better blow them out. Like if they win, if this game is within seventeen, I'm cracking on Oregon. Seventeen. So they should yeah, be, dude, blow someone out. These guys can't score, and you have Kayvon and everyone back. Most everyone back. Shut. Hold them to ten. If it's twenty four, if it's twenty four, and there's a late touchdown against like the third team defense, then I won't count that. All right. Well, that's why yeah. I say 
That's why I say. I mean, I will will offer some concessions in certain areas with the fluke things and stuff like that. Yeah, I I am. That's why I. That's why I say. But it should. It shouldn't be twenty four. It should be thirty four, and then that happens. That's what I'm saying. Blow these fools out. I I think that this is. Sorry, I take that back. Blow these kids out. I I think that this is a. (laughs) This is a opportunity, in a midday Fox game. Hang a number. Oregon to showcase. A whole lot of individual players. And then the last thing we'll say on this for this week as a whole. With the most completely undetermined, wide open, who knows, Heisman race. Many of us have seen in a long, long, long time. I don't I'll say it. I'm going to. No, no. I don't think there's I'll a chance. It. Not a snowball's chance. <laughs> not a snowball's chance. But I do think that this is an opportunity for Kayvon whereby on a national scale and a game where he can make a statement, you talk about dominance and just downright game-wrecking games. He did it on national television last week in a big way. He did it against Cal on national television late in a big way. He has another opportunity against a massively overmatched opponent to showcase. Cal game was seen by no one east of the Rockies, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm well, no, 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 no. I'm, no. I'm I mean, it was, it was late. It. it was late, but yes, yeah, it was on ESPN. But point is, just another national television opportunity whereby he can showcase and put himself back in some award conversations that he may have been prematurely removed from because of the games that he missed. But right. if he continues to play like he did last week, holy smokes, man! I mean, you know, talk about a guy where he may, if he keeps it up over the last second, the second half of the season, you could talk about a guy who's got over twenty tackles for loss on the season. Um, hard, hard to, you know, hard to disqualify that guy from a whole lot from a award standpoint. So that's why I say another, it's an opportunity for Brown, Die, the receiving core, the offensive line, Thibodeau, the whole front seven for that matter, just about everybody, um, to showcase <laughs> themselves. Because, yeah, I, again, I can't build it any other which way. Colorado, look, they're, they're, the running backs could get some yards. They could. Or they could just run into a brick wall. This offense, I agree with there. Look, they can't score. They've, they've struggled mightily. They have they have very little going for them. Other than I will say this, I would be remiss if we left them out. Nate Landman is a dude. He is a playmaker. He is a, a downhill linebacker and also makes some plays occasionally against the passing game of pass breakups. Uh, he's going to get his. He's going to get a boatload of tackles. Oregon's going to run a whole bunch, and Landman's going to be in on a boatload. He's tied for seventh nationally in solo tackles. He's everywhere. I'm not telling you, he's not a first-round linebacker. He's not, but he is an all-conference linebacker. He, frankly, should probably be in All-American conversation, not first team, but conversation, and he's one of those underrated players in this league, but he's not a first- or second-round pick. He's not, but as a college football player, as a college football linebacker, he is damn good. And he's going to get a ton of production because, because you know, again, strategically, he can't even just take away out who who plays against the run as much as he does, and Oregon's going to run the football. So he's just going to he's going to be everywhere. So you're going to hear Nate Lamon's name a lot. Uh, and fortunately for Ducks and Ducks fans, this is the last time you're going to hear from him probably because I can't imagine that he'll actually come back around uh, for another go after this. I think this is it for him. So you will see him. But otherwise, no, this is not going to be a most serious test for sure uh, for Oregon on Saturday. So with that, we will recap this game next week. 
And we will set up for, at that point, the Washington game, which uh, I'm sure everybody is starting to get quite excited about, no matter what Washington's record is. So, with that, I'm James Crepia for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. He's Aaron Fentress. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Give us a five-star review and everything else so it helps others find it as well. And we'll see you next week.